Father, thank you for your word. Lord, as we open our Bibles, help us to open our hearts. And Lord, teach us, we pray. And help us not just to learn, but to act in response. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Great. Well, the, the title for our session this morning is The Oppression of the Vulnerable because that's one of the main things that we see as uh, a focus in this section of the sins of uh, the people of Israel. And now, if you remember back, we found out that if you were going on a tourist route around Bethel or Dan in the north, the northern kingdom of Israel, it would give you the impression of a, a very religious people, a very religious people. Now, Amos has traveled up to the north from the south. He's a farmer from Judah. And he's sent by God to preach a challenging message to the people there up in the north. Now, 200 years earlier, the, the nation split off. The north split off from the south into two separate rival nations, as you can see on the map on the screen. But as Amos begins his message, the northerners are going to be cheering on as they start to hear what he's saying. Because the message is about the fact that the nations around them, such as the, the Moabites and the Edomites and the Canaanites and so on, the Philistines, the nations around them who've done them wrong, well, they seem to got to be getting away with it for so long. But God is saying in the message, they will be punished. Justice will be done. And they're saying, yes, the Israelites, they're saying, yes. And then Judah, their rival in the south, there's a message about them. They're going to get justice too. And the Israelites exclaim again, yes. But then the next sentence Amos proclaims is, and you Israelites, you're heading for disaster too. And so the, the finger turns around and points to them. And one of the wrongs of the Israelites, we see, is something called hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. And so the message that God brings through Amos is lifting the lid on hypocrisy in the people of Israel in the north. Now, as I said, a tourist route around Bethel or Dan in the north would give the impression of a, a religious people, quite prosperous, quite settled. Warren Wearsby in his book wrote this. Remember, Jewish theology equated prosperity with God's blessing. And as long as the people were enjoying the good life, they were sure God was pleased with them. But that wasn't the case. That isn't the case. Just because we might be comfortable, just because we might be fairly prosperous and so on, that doesn't mean we're necessarily doing what God wants us to do. Now, God sees the heart of the Israelites. He sees the heart of the nation. And the message of Amos, if you like, lifts the lid on the reality, lifts the lid. Now, a few weeks ago now, I was doing some work for uh, a family, a couple that live in Boulderton, and they live in a bungalow, and in the garage, they've got a manhole cover. And they asked me because they had problems with their drains. Uh, and so I, my job was to, a very nasty, smelly, stinky job, was to try and clear the drains out. So I lift up the manhole cover in the garage, and oh yeah, stinks horrible. So I get the drain rods and clear out there and, and think, oh, that's, that's clearer now but no, still problem. So is there any other place? So outside, there's another manhole cover, which is hard to get up, eventually get it up, lift the lid on that, oh, even worse. The stinks in there as well, all the rubbish is in there and it's terrible. So get the drain rods in, clear it out, clear out the mess. Surely that's going to solve the problem? No. Where else can I look? Well, at the bottom of the drive, there's another manhole cover that links in with the neighbors, the other side of the fence, and their drainage as well. So I look inside there, lift the lid off, and it's full of horrible stuff, but also roots. 
there's some bushes in the side of the drive and the roots were growing through into the, the, the where the everything should drain away into the main drain and they were blocking it. So the root of the problem, I found the root of the problem and it took me a long time to get clear of those roots and eventually everything was running smoothly and the stink was, uh, was washing away. And so that was a relief, but uh, it wasn't a very nice job, but we had to get to the root of the problem to solve it, literally to the roots of the problem. And here the message of Amos gets to the root. It lifts the lid and reveals the hypocrisy, sadly, of the people of Israel. The Israelites, they would condemn the pagan people around them. Remember, remember the map, all those nations around? They would be pleased when their pagan enemies got their comeuppances. But the truth is that many people in Israel, not all of them, but many people in Israel were behaving just like the heathen pagans. And that's why God has to bring this hard message to them after many, many other messages warning them time and time again. Now, what's hypocrisy? Well, hypocrisy is wearing a mask. It's making sure that you look right outwardly, but looking down on others and behind the scenes, in the secret places of your mind, in your heart, behind closed doors, you're really the same in your thought life and behavior. And hypocrisy is a terrible thing. It's a pretense. Hypocrisy is not trying, but failing. Now, we're, we all do that, don't we? Preachers and listeners alike, all of us, young and old, we, we try, we see our faults, we see our failings. And hypocrisy is not trying and then failing and then trying and then failing, because we can be very honest about that and open about that with God, with ourselves and with others where we need to be. But hypocrisy is denying our faults. It's putting a, a cover on. It's like putting a veneer over the mess. It's like putting that manhole cover back on the drain where the, the, the stuff, the stink is still in there. It's wearing a mask. And, and that's usually associated with seeing faults in others and trying to make your faults seem less serious. So you big up the faults of other people and minimize yours. And, and, and this kind of hypocrisy goes on in many areas of life. The truth is, as we have in the memory verse, the next memory verse for the children, that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. All of us, the truth is that we all sin. We all fail. And Jesus calls us all to repent and, and to believe in him for salvation. He calls you, if you're not yet a Christian, to turn to him. However, Jesus calls all sinners to repent with a, an open heart, with a mercy. But Jesus has his strongest warnings to hypocrites, to pretenders, to people who, who cover up their sins, but look down on others. And in Matthew 23, Jesus is speaking to a group of people that were stereotypically and often uh, hypocrites. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Now, the key is to be honest sinners. That's the key, to be honest sinners. The reality is that we are. But the key is to be honest sinners, to be to be real with God, not to pretend. In the, one of the most useful verses I found in my life in the Bible is 1 John chapter 1, verse 8 and 9. And this is something that we should know by heart, I believe, or know the, the essence of it by heart. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and will purify us from all unrighteousness. We need 
to be honest about our sins. Don't be deceitful. Don't try to cover up and pretend. Don't maximize everyone else's faults and failings and ignore your own. But be honest. Confess your sins. God is faithful and just. He's able to forgive your sins. If you're not yet a Christian, he's able to bring that forgiveness to you. That first time you become a Christian and declare you righteous and forgiven. But if we're already Christians, we don't need to become Christians again, of course. But we do need to be honest about our ongoing failings and, and, and sinfulness so that God can work in us and change us and purify us. So beware of hypocrisy. The message of Amos lifts the lid on hypocrisy. Now, the second thing is that we see the sins of Israel. The lid's lifted off and God challenges the people of Israel with a number of, of their sins. Verse 6 of our passage in Amos 2. This is what the Lord says, for three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not relent. And we found out, didn't we, that that is a, a Jewish idiom, a way of saying that there's been multiple sins. It's got to a point and now the tipping point has been reached and God is not going to turn back because you've reached a tipping point. And we know that Israel had many, many warnings from many prophets down through the years. They should have known better. Now, I want you to picture a temple building in the north in Israel, or maybe if our imagination can't picture a, a temple building, think of a church building, a, maybe a, a standard stereotypical church building. And the first impression that it's a place for worshipping the one God, the one true God, or in Israel, of course, the one true God of the Israelites. And we know this one true God is the creator of all. He's a rescuer of the ancient Israelites. He's the one true God. But as you get closer to the building, as you go inside the building, you start to hear and see strange things that, and you feel uncomfortable. Something isn't right there. The label looked good. It looked like a, a, a good old church building. We expected the good old message to be preached and good old believers to be in there. But although the label looked good, the contents start, well, you realize they stink. It's not the worship of the one true God that goes in here, but you see around the building statues, idols, people worshipping statues and idols made of wood and stone, covered with gold, some of them. Very fancy, but they're idols. And it seems that in that temple, we have some very rich and powerful people, a mix of people, but there are certainly some rich and powerful people in that church building. There's a rich person who has lent money to someone in trouble. Now, the Old Testament law says that People could lend money for no interest to each other and something could be taken in collateral or uh, as, as a security when giving a loan. But if you were to take a loan uh, from uh, or give a loan to a poor person and take some collateral, that poor person might have, for instance, only their coat on their back. That's all they've got to keep warm at night. And if the money lender takes his or her coat, God said that they must return it by nightfall so that poor person doesn't suffer from the cold night. You may collect it in the morning again to remind them they need to pay the debt, but you must not cause that poor person to suffer. But here's a rich person using the poor person's coat to lie on as he spends his night in pagan worship there in the temple. Now, in the temple, there are lawyers too, maybe judges. But here, there they are getting drunk, drinking wine, taking as fines in the court system. They're profiting from pronouncing guilty verdicts against the powerless. Then you notice young women coming and going in the temple building. And some of the worshippers disappear with them into the rooms of the main hall. You realise there's prostitution going on here. And we know that pagan worship often involved this. 
So in a temple building, in a church building, in a nation where people profess to be worshippers of the Lord, there's a cesspit of behaviour that speaks at the rot of the heart of the nation. The lid has been lifted and we see the sins of the Israelites. We see how the vulnerable are oppressed. They sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. People sold into slavery. Justice is denied. Verse 7, they trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. Disrespect is shown. Utter terrible disrespect and profanity. Father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. God's name is brought into dishonour by this behaviour. Verse 8, they lie down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. In the house of their God, they drink wine taken as fines. And there's something here which is a great tragedy. Father and son use the same girl. Surely a father's responsibility is to lead in godliness and not to lead his son into sinful behaviour. But here we see father and son engaged in the same sin. And there's a, a reminder here, isn't there, to be careful what we teach our children. Now, there are some parents who teach their children how to get drunk. There are some parents who teach their children how to leer at men or, or women. There are some parents that teach their children how to talk with dis disrespect to their partner. There are some parents that teach children to be bullies to their future husbands or wives in the way that they speak to their wives and husbands. There are some parents that teach how children how to swear, how to tell dirty jokes. There are some parents that teach their children how to be self-centred, how to be selfish, how to live on the edge of the law, to cut corners, how to profess some, how to profess to be a disciple of Jesus, but that Jesus is not that important to them. Some parents teach their children how to do their own thing and not see that God is important to consider. In the thought processes. Now of course in, in many of those cases, in most of those cases, those parents would never have dreamed of deliberately set out to teach these things. But little eyes and little ears have watched and listened and learned from the example. They learn from our example. Surely a, a parent, a father, should teach his son to be godly, not to be joining in or encouraging in the same kind of sins. And so there's a warning for us as, as parents here, isn't there? And of course, a godly son should surely speak up to a parent, even though it might be very difficult to, to do so. Now, encouraged by the corrupt judges, the rich Israelites were, were suing the poor who were powerless to pay their bills. And this forced them into slavery rather than showing mercy and compassion. Poor people were, were trampled like the dust on the ground. And as we'll see, Amos has a great deal to say about caring for the poor as we go through our studies, or rather God says a great deal through Amos about caring for the poor. And so we have an awful picture of depravity, pagan worship, utter disrespect for women, unkindness to the poor. And it, it kind of challenges our own society, doesn't it? And we're not going to get into talking about uh, politics and, and, and in this kind of situation, but it does challenge us, doesn't it, how we care for people in our society and, and whether we turn blind eyes when we should speak up, when we should write to an MP, where we should say something. You know, if we were going into that pagan temple and saw people being abused and saw uh, that kind of thing going on, would we just walk out or would we say something? Would we at least write to the, some authority? Would we try to stand up? And then, of course, sometimes it comes closer to home, doesn't it? Are there 
friends, other people, even in our own family, other brothers or sisters, that we are pushing around. We were pushing around. Maybe we wouldn't sell them into slavery and things like that, like, like Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery. But maybe we're just using our weight, pushing our weight, throwing our weight around, not speaking tenderly where we should and not being kind and gentle and, and kind of pushing our weight around. There's different ways that we can maybe oppress the poor, the vulnerable, the younger, the weaker, those who have problems with health and so on. So let's be mindful, let's be prayerful that we are good salt in our society. Well, there's lots more we could say on that, but we know that the Israelites had no excuse for the way that were they the way they were behaving. In Exodus chapter 20 and verse 2 to 3, I am the Lord your God, he says, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. God had told them plain and straight. And then Exodus 22 and verse 25, if you lend money to one of my people among you who's needy, do not treat it like a business deal. Charge no interest. If you take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, return it by sunset because that cloak is the only covering your neighbor has. What else can they sleep in? When they cry out to me, I will hear for them, for I am compassionate. And then Deuteronomy 24, verse 17 says, do not deprive the foreigner or the fatherless of justice or take the cloak of the widow as a pledge. The people should have known better. And we should know better, wouldn't, shouldn't we? Certainly those of us who have been brought up in Christian homes, those, those of us who become Christians and are learning how to live the Christian life, we've got God's word, we should know better. And of course, they knew the command, and we know the command, to love our neighbour as we love ourselves. Now, the third thing is this. Despite what the Lord had done, they were doing this. And that makes it, in some ways, even worse. So we're looking at uh, verse 9 to 10 or 9 to 12 in this section here, this third section. Now, it says, Yet I destroyed the Amorites before them, though they were tall as the cedars and strong as the oaks. I destroyed the, their fruit above and their roots below. I brought you up out of Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness to give you the land of the Amorites. So that's what God had done for them. And these sins that have been exposed, these are the sins they were doing despite what the Lord had done. And that makes it even worse, doesn't it? Now, we could understand, we could excuse, or rather not excuse, but we could understand if these people didn't have the Old Testament law, couldn't we? If they knew no better, if they didn't have the experience of God helping them and leading them, rescuing them, and so on, as they did have. If they didn't have the instructions in the, the first part of the Bible, the Old Testament, if they didn't have the history and the heritage of God's dealings with them, then we could not excuse their sin, but we could understand if they didn't know any better but these people knew far better didn't they they had experienced all these things God's rescues God's provision God had done so much for them so they had not only sinned against each other as we can see the oppressing the poor the vulnerable and so on not only had they sinned against each other but they had abused God's grace and God's goodness and there's a an instruction a warning in the New Testament which is in theme with the whole of the Bible in Romans chapter 2 and verse 4 and, it, and it's a challenge to us. Or do you show contempt for the riches of his, that's God's kindness, forbearance, patience, not realising that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. So that 
quote from Romans chapter two there could, could have been read by Amos, couldn't it? Back in the time, back in his time, in the 750s or so uh, BC. Picture this, this generation of people who've been so blessed and yet now they'd neglected God, ignored him. God had shown them kindness. They had been blessed, but they were assuming that they could carry on with their sin because they were at this point prosperous, fairly wealthy and so on. Picture a generation of spiritually mediocre people and worse, as we can see in this case here, too interested in their comforts to care. Don't want the, the, the boats to be rocked, do they? They go through the motions of faith, but they have no heart passion anymore, no faithfulness to God, no first love for God. And so what had God done? Well, God had raised up preachers, prophets to, uh, from the younger people, from the younger generation. God had raised up prophets and preachers to speak to this older, mediocre generation, passionate believers with a burden, with a message from God to challenge this complacency and mediocrity, as well as outright sin. And this had happened in the past before Amos. And also amongst that younger generation, God had stirred the hearts of some of the young people to take what's called a Nazarite vow. This was a vow to abstain from wine, to let your hair grow long, like kind of lockdown long and, uh, and longer. And it was a, a voluntary option, but it was a commitment by people who felt burdened to dedicate their lives to serve God and so on. It could be time of uh, uh, getting alone with God more and reading his word and so on, and certainly trying to live as a, as a good example in the nation. And we read about the, the Nazarites in Numbers chapter 6 and, and verse 1. Uh, I won't read the whole section here, but just a part from it. Numbers uh, 6. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, if a man or woman wants to make a special vow, a vow of dedication to the Lord as a Nazarite, they must abstain from wine and other fermented drink and must not drink vinegar made from wine or other fermented drink. They must not drink grape juice or eat grapes or raisins. And then verse five, during the entire period of their Nazarite vow, no razor may be used on their head. They must be holy until the period of their dedication to the Lord is over. They must let their hair grow long. So that's the Nazarite vow. Now, some of the young people in declining Israel had become preachers and Nazarites. They'd kind of felt that things need to change. They felt they needed to challenge and speak out against the sins and the mediocrity of the nation. Verse 11 of our passage in Amos, chapter 2, verse 11, talks about this. I also raised up prophets from among your children and Nazarites from among your youths. Is this not true, people of Israel, declares the Lord? But verse 12 tells us what the older generation did. Verse 12, but you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets not to prophesy. God was speaking to them. God was challenging them. But what did they do? They said, shut up to the prophets and to the Nazarites, have a drink. Shut up to the prophets and to the Nazarites, have a drink. They can't stand these keen and passionate believers because they didn't want their complacency disrupted. They didn't want their sin exposed. They didn't want to change. And so they, they crushed the enthusiasm of these keen younger folk. They led these passionate believers into their own mediocrity and complacency. What a terrible thing to squash the enthusiasm of someone who loves the Lord and wants to serve him. And so we can see that what the Lord had done for Israel over the years we can see how he'd rescued them and protected them. We can see how he'd sent preachers to stir them up when they became complacent, to wake them up so they would not descend into this corruption. But they despised God's goodness and they told the prophets to shut up. 
Now, let's think of us now in the New Testament era. God has defeated our enemies at the cross. The Lord has done great things for us. And we're glad, aren't we? The Lord has rescued us. He's redeemed us from the world. The Old Testament image would be rescued from Egypt. God has saved us from the world. We were part of the world. We were heading in its direction, the broad road to destruction, as, uh, as Jesus said. But God has saved us from that. We've been rescued. We've been redeemed. That means rescued at a price, the price of the blood of Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. So we've been rescued from the, the, the destination of the world and, it, and judgment. And God has taken us out of that and he's led us, he's guided us, he's given us his word, he's given us his Holy Spirit, he's with us, and we're, we're in a good place spiritually. However healthy you are, however um, um, you are in your financial situation, however you are in your circumstances at this present point, it might be difficult, it might be challenging, but spiritually you are in a, you are in a good place. You're in the Lord's hands and nothing can take you away from him. You're spiritually secure despite the storm that you might be in at the moment. And one day it's going to get infinitely better because one day there's heaven ahead. So God has done good things for us. He's defeated our enemies at the cross. Jesus died and Satan has, has been given the death blow. Jesus has rescued us from Egypt. He's rescued us from the world. And instead of heading, heading towards hell now, we're heading towards heaven. And he's led us, he's guided us, he's kept us, he's preserved us through the years, despite our faults and failings. He's been speaking to us. We've got our Bibles, we've got each other in the fellowship, we've got Bible teaching to, to share together with them, to able the ability to pray for each other. And God has put us in a good place spiritually. We're seated with Christ in heavenly places, and one day there's the reality of heaven in the new, new creation. We have Jesus our Savior, and that's enough. We have God's word. That's even better. And his presence through the Holy Spirit. We, we've got a multiplication of, of blessings, haven't we? Now, do we take God's goodness for granted now? The Lord help us know. Do we despise enthusiasm and passion for the Lord? Well, with the Lord's help, no. Please, Lord, no. But to be honest, we know our hearts, don't we? And we know we do find ourselves forgetting what the Lord has done for us, don't we? We do suffer from spiritual amnesia. We know we do find people, annoying people sometimes, who challenge our drift into mediocrity. And we don't like it. It gets under our skin. Now, Amos would have been an awkward person, wouldn't he, for the leaders in Israel? He'd move from down south up north uh, to speak to these people. He was a farmer. He may still have had some soil under his fingernails. He wouldn't be in fine clothes. He would have a different accent. He was from a different part of the, of the area. And, and who would have listened to him? Who would have listened to, to such a man? Well, they didn't want to listen to him, did they? We'll find out that a bit, bit later on. But he came with God's message. And he had something so important that they needed to hear. And he had a message despite all the judgment God was predicting. He had a message of hope because there's still hope. And we'll come to that in a moment. Now, let me ask you, are there people that God is using to speak to you at this point? They may not, may not be right on everything, but God is using them to speak to you. But you focus on their idiosyncrasies rather than the truth of the message or their example. Are you not listening to someone whom God is using to speak to you? You may not agree with everything about them, but there's something you know they've said that God is, put, God is using that to put a finger on something in your heart, in your life. Well, let's not forget what the Lord has done. Let's not be unwilling to listen to what he has to say to us. 
There's a psalm, Psalm 103, verse 1 says, Praise the Lord, my soul, all my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. And then in, in the New Testament, again, this is a quote from the Old Testament, but it's Hebrews 3 verse 15. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Well, lastly, we see disastrous consequences ahead, but hope remains. The chapter finishes with a serious warning of what is going to happen to Israel. Verse 13. Now then, I will crush you as a cart crushes when loaded with grain. The swift will not escape. The strong will not muster their strength. And the warrior will not save his life. The archer will not stand his ground and the fleet-footed soldier will not get away. And the horseman will not save his life. Even the bravest warriors will flee naked on that day, declares the Lord. Now, in about 30 years time from when Amos gave this message, 720 BC, Assyria invades Israel. It comes true. As a nation, the northern tribes are finished. The tipping point has been reached. But again, there is hope. And we'll come to more on that in our future studies. But for now, let's remember that people in Israel, individuals could still be saved, even though this was the disaster that was heading for them. In Amos chapter 5, just as, as an example, we see this is what the Lord says to Israel. Seek me and live. Seek me and live. Seek the Lord and live. So in the midst of all this, in the midst of the disaster that's coming because of stubbornness over many years and not listening, there's still hope. Now, it could be that you feel that you're, as a person like Israel, and if we were to lift the lid on your heart, there's a lot of stink in there. And there's hypocrisy in there. And there's stubbornness to listen, stubbornness to change. And you know the warnings, you've, you've ignored the mercy of God. You've ignored his opportunities. He's been good to you, but you've not listened. He sent prophets, preachers to you, but you've not listened. He sent awkward people, long-haired um, people who've, uh, like the Nazarites, who've kind of given you a message and got under your skin, you didn't like it, and you told them to, to shut up or, or go and have a drink. But you know what? Even though you might be on the very edge of disaster, God's message to you is still this. Seek me and live. You see, Israel was a nation. You're not a nation. You're a person. You're an individual. Now, the nation was past the point, but there were still individuals. And think about that message to you this morning. Seek me and live. There's hope for you. And we find how Jesus spoke to people whose, whose lives were on the edge of disaster because of things that happened to them, things that they had done, and people who were outcasts of society. But Jesus spoke to them, and at least they were honest about their sins. And he said to me, come to me, all you're weary and heavy laden, all you're burdened by your guilt and sin, and I will give you rest. And he calls you. The message is still the same. Seek me and live. Anyone who calls to Jesus for forgiveness, to be right with God, to be sure of heaven, seek him and you will live. And even if you were at a point in your life of getting a bit older or long in the tooth, as we might say, and you think, well, if I, if I just submit my life to the Lord now, if I become a Christian now, if I, if I trust the Lord now, what have I got left of my life to live? 
I've lived all my life doing this, that, and the other, and in my heart, living uh, with such a cesspit in here, despite looking decent on the outside, how can God take and use me? Well, God is able to take your life. Think of the, the dying thief on the cross and how the message of his life speaks to us today. So many thousands of people have become Christians through knowing his story, but you're not there in that situation. You've still got life to live. You've still got breath to breathe. Let's dedicate that life and that breath to seeking and to serving, serving the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your compassion upon the poor and the vulnerable and how, Lord, you challenged the Israelites for their lack of care, for their injustice, for their oppression of the poor and the vulnerable. Help us, dear Lord, to be people who are looking out for those who need help, those who need speaking up for, those who need to be cared for, those who need to be loved and cherished. Lord, help us not to be bullies in our own circumstances, to push our weight around, to oppress, maybe in subtle ways, through the way we speak, through the way we might emotionally manipulate people. Lord, preserve us from, from that, Lord, even in subtle ways. And help us, Lord, to be salt and light in our society, in our workplace, in our community. Father, we pray that we would not be like the ancient Israelites, ignoring your message that we might be honest sinners and lord we we open the lid of our hearts to you right now and lord there's there's awful things in there but lord we thank you that you are the one who gave your life so that 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 stench that sin can be forgiven through jesus and that the blood of jesus christ cleanses us from all sin and that we can if we're not yet be right with you through faith in jesus lord help us as we go forward to live our lives in honour of you, the one who's done so much for us, the one who's so loved us, and help us, dear Lord, to be compassionate, to be caring, help us to be those who seek to honour you, help us, Lord, to be committed to you, dedicated to you, like those ancient Nazarites, like those people, those younger prophets who spoke up in a difficult situation, to be like Amos, who speaks the truth to power and has that courage of our convictions. So we pray for your help in all these things. Forgive us for our many sins. And we thank you, Jesus, for being our saviour. Amen.